Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Anthony Malakian. I am the U.S. Editor of Waters. And as always, I'm joined by James Rundle, News Editor of Waters. Hello, everyone. So, today, we are, it's been a, you know, we've had some good news stories go up. We're just going to hit on some news stories after uh, James is back from uh, Cybos. Yes. And uh, so, we're going to look at, um, so he's going to quickly chat about Cybos. Um, but, you know, we've already talked a lot about that. We had last week, we had uh, some of your interviews from that. Um, Quite frankly, we'll, I want to forget everything about it as well. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. This, is, <laughs> yeah, this will be the end of it. And uh, Risk USA will uh, will happen this week. So we had just a couple interesting things from there, and uh, maybe just a quick little discussion about um, the industry freaking out about the cat after Mia was attending SIFMA um, down in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, yeah, but uh, before we get to that, couple events just keep on your radar. If you're in Hong Kong, we have the Asia-Pacific Financial Information Conference. That'll be November 13th through the 15th. Um, again, in Hong Kong, Wei Shen Wang will be out there so you can meet her. Um, fortunately, they will not be flying us out there, but, you know. It's well, good. Yeah. Yep. But uh, Waters Technology Innovation Summit, that's going to be on November 15th. Uh, that'll be in London. Um, which they're also not flying us out for. Yeah, which they're also not flying us out for. <laughs> Fintechs and uh, just, you know, disruption and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And then Waters USA, December 4th in New York. They are flying Wei Shen out, and they are flying Victor Anderson out for that. But uh, so we're not being sent the favorite children of water yes, technology. Yes, yes. we know where we are on the pecking ball. Um, the third world sweatshop. <laughs> <laughs> so put those on your radar, and um, to a good, couple good conferences that we have coming up. Um, speaking of conferences, yeah. Speaking of conferences, speaking of disruptions, speaking speak of, of disruption. fintech. fintech. Cybos. Cybos. The least relevant mega conference to us in the history of mega conferences, probably. But uh, it was actually pretty good this year. Um, so Cybos has kind of switched, I guess, from being a very much post-trade focused conference to being one that's more focused around fintech and payments and trade finance and all that kind of stuff we don't really care about. But um, yeah, a couple of like themes for Capital Markets, guys, which we covered in a feature which um, has gone up. On the website now, I think yeah, up yesterday, yeah, well, yeah, um, which you can check out. Go to waterstechnology.com. Um, four big themes, I guess, were blockchain, cyber, um, AI, AI, yeah, and robotics, and robotics, yeah, and then some side topics were AML, KYC, and uh, I guess fintech. The most, yeah, fintech is probably the most interesting one. Really looking at, um, you know, so four or five years ago when fintech was the big kind of bell of the ball, um, everyone was talking about how they're going to displace banks, they're going to replace the DCCC, they're going to do all this amazing wizardry with financial markets, and uh, fast forward to 2017 and it's not really the case. Yeah. <laughs> They've mostly either been acquired by the banks or they're working with them now, um, and every time you bring it up to a fintech, there's this kind of like embarrassed little giggle and goes, yeah, well, it's some more difficult than you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, really, guys. Tracking, really. <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. So one guy from R3 said, yeah, you know, you can raise five bucks in their day, you're going to replace the DTCC, but you also need a billion-dollar balance sheet to execute on it, um, yeah. which kind of just encapsulates how silly a lot of these arguments were. So I guess that was kind of the uh, the interesting thing. And the title of the piece, actually, on the site is called Disrupting the Disruptors. So that's a... Good title. Good headline. Well, I really want to get a picture of, like, a little kid with a toy laser gun or something. Just you should have told me. Well, you know I would have drawn something up on Photoshop. Could that, yeah. That's <laughs> not, I don't think you'll ever reach the halcyon heights of the SS Asset Management. Again. SS Asset Management. <laughs> Never be as good as that. Never be as good as that. Uh, yeah, so Cybos, yeah, um, a lot of more sober kind of thought, I guess, about kind of blockchain, about all this stuff. For our audience, you know, that 
for the people that didn't go there, so next year I think it's in Sydney. If it I'm not is, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that it's because, as you said, like Cybos were always like, you know, how much should we attend? How hard should we hit this? Because so much is about payments, you know, th- yeah. stuff like that. Stuff that, you know, on the retail side, there's a lot of interesting stuff that you have, but for us specifically, you know, sometimes it's hit and miss. Even the guys in the banks are all from Treasury or they're from their transaction banking arms or their commercial bank rather than necessarily their kind of. Uh, the CTO of the investment bank or yeah. the markets division or whatever that we want to talk to. And I guess for the guys listening, you know, if that's your bag, there are other conferences you can go to for it. Um, yeah. If you want just a general overview of where technology is going, though, and kind of just to get into the weeds of where people's thinking is, things like AI and using cross-sector examples, then it's good for that. But yeah. if you're expecting something like, you know, a Sifma tech or something, you're going to be disappointed. Well, I mean, if... The choice is to get sent out to Toronto in October mm-hmm. or Sydney in October. Yes. I think I'd rather go to Sydney, if I'm being <laughs> honest with you. I like Toronto, though. This is the thing. You hate Toronto, I, I like Toronto. Toronto. I like it. It's clean. No though. offense to any of our listeners that are from Toronto. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the nearest bar to my hotel that was showing the Chelsea game was actually the Chelsea supporters bar as well, so that kind of endeared the city to me in a certain way. So. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that's my criteria for judging yeah exactly it's like, it was good they had a Chelsea bar there <laughs> alright so on to the our conference well our family's conference yes InfoPro Digital's uh, Risk USA conference yep um, I have a great French accent by the way just endearing yeah. yourself to Paris yeah, exactly, <laughs> every exactly. second I keep saying that Jamie Sauvignon yeah. I will remember it's on the back of all the Quebec License plates. I don't think I'm pronouncing it right. How do you say, does anybody have a job for me in French? <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, Risk USA. Um, this week, uh, it was, it's basically, it's kind of an all week conference with Monday, uh, or I think it was, what is it? Yeah, Monday and Thursday, Friday, kind of like workshop. Kind of Training stuff. days, yeah. Yeah, but um, the heavy stuff, the, the good, the, the panel stuff was uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, James went up there, uh, James and I went up there and you know, it's funny, if you read Waters, if you're a religious re- reader of Waters, you know, we go heavy into technology, we try to go heavy into technology, explain what new disruptive technologies will mean for you, what these regulations will mean from a technology perspective versus from a legal perspective, per se, right. um, uh, from a trading strategy kind of way. Um, so, if you go to risk.net, it's you know, when they talk about technology, it's, so it's usually kind of big T technology, you know, yeah. kind of... It's definitely yeah. through a heavy kind of markets uh, lens, isn't it? So yeah, sure. Um, so this year, though, there was a lot of technology talk, and it, it just goes to show the shift that we were seeing overall in the industry where banks are becoming technology companies now. Yeah, and they always said, said I don't want to be a technology company. Now they are technology. Yeah, now they're filling in. Like BlackRock said, we're a fintech firm this week. No, yeah. you're not. Yeah. You're a money manager. Yeah, money manager. Who does a lot of technology stuff. Yeah, yeah you <laughs> so, have a budget that you can throw money at technology, yeah. basically. That's what we had this conversation the other day about how do you classify a fintech firm. I think it was you and me sure. having this, right? Yeah. And, um, and my argument is that Goldman loves to say they're a technology firm, and Barclays is saying it, I think, and uh, like various other build bulge brackets, and now BlackRock and people like that, Fidelity says it as well. And my central argument is, if the core of your business is making technology, then yes, you're a fintech firm. If the core of your business is managing money, then you're a fucking bank. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, you yeah, just use a lot of technology. no other way of splitting this Pardon hand. my French, but you know, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, jumping on this weird little bandwagon is just so bizarre. Lovely. So, so lovely. <laughs> 
that's been trying to remember French then. But, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't quite get it. And um, yeah, but you're right though. The technology is just, and we've known this because we cover it for, and we have done for years. Technology is the backbone of the market. It affects everything. Some people argue that finance is an expression of technology now, um, which again comes down to the fact that if you took away the capital and just left the technology, you wouldn't have the practice. So I don't really agree with that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see how even people at risk are now covering it to such an extent. It's, yeah, I mean, like when you know you read these some stories on risk, you know about the oh god, the importance of data. Data is really important. This is stuff called alternative data is really <gasps> shocking. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, Max Bowie's been covering it for 20-some-odd years. You could have been reading about it all this time, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's like it, some it, kind of new asset class. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they talk about, like, uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence or blockchain. It's like, oh, well, you know, it's like, calm down. You know, right now you have a, you know, a risk manager who hasn't probably dealt with technology that much. Now all of a sudden, no, we'll really excited about technology because they're learning cool new things. That they well, can it's do. literally like watching that kind of microcosm happen in the newsroom. And for those of you who think we're being a bit harsh, this is kind of the dynamic we have between risk yes. and authors. You know, we've been sister magazines for decades, but yeah. so and we, we are definitely <laughs> the you know they're the big brother. We are the yeah, uh, we're the ginger-headed yeah. stepchild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we love to rip on them with technology, and it's just really mm-hmm. fun to do it. But it is literally like kind of watching a risk manager having to get acquainted very quickly with. Um, all this kind of technology and techno bubble and the rest of it, watching all the senior editors at risk having to do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we write about credit default swaps. We don't write about blockchain. I mean, come on. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So this conference, um, they had one panel that was basically dedicated, or on Tuesday they had one panel that was dedicated to machine learning. That a whole AI, stream that was like dedicated to yeah, yeah. yeah. Um Sorry, not panel, yeah, a whole stream. Hmm. Um, so it was funny because James came in, uh, so the early part, he covered that, and then they had this panel on um, liquidity, um, liquidity risk, everything like that, and I was like, you know, I just want to learn more about it, because, yeah. you know, there are plenty of things that I don't know about that um, a risk conference serves as kind of a teaching thing for me. Right, in exactly, some ways. and that area particularly is quite opaque to get your head around if you don't have someone telling you what it is and kind of that kind of thing. So, so you know, as I was just sitting in the conference, sitting next to uh, Faye Kilburn, who used to be on our team, then went over to the bad guys, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we were just sitting next to each other, and I was just kind of hanging out with her, but I wasn't really planning on writing anything. And all of a sudden, this panel starts, you know, talking about the SEC's liquidity rules. All of a sudden, just starts going and having a heavy discussion on technology and or or data and kind of the vendors in that space. And the interesting thing about it was that there were two um, two people on the panel. So you had Charles Bragg, who's the U.S. Chief Risk Officer for UBS Asset Management. So he's been at UBS for 20 years. Yeah, he knows his shit. He knows his stuff. Yeah. And then you had um, uh, Matthew Halpern. Um, he's a global risk officer at MFS Investments. He's got, I think, over like 30 years of, uh, of time spent. So these guys aren't greenhorns, yeah. you know? Yeah, these <laughs> are you know just newbies you know, that yeah. just don't understand the market. This is decades of experience. And they started talking about how um, when the SEC first proposed um, their um, liquidity rules, in 2015, September 2015, when they started proposing it and they started talking about these buckets of liquidity and going with six buckets down to four, the, the, what they contend is that uh, vendors uh, may have overpromised and basically under-delivered uh, on their ability to provide accurate information for the fixed income market. And how dare they? A vendor dare would they? never do that. In I know. <laughs> and it's like one of those funny things that 
you know, you, they overpromised in this one area, yeah. and now it's coming coming back to bite everybody in the butt. Yeah. And now everybody's really hoping for another delay. Now, granted, these guys also they've been the, the experience for decades. They understand how much saber rattling can actually lead to delays and stuff like that mm-hmm. in in on regulation. Yeah, you got to factor in the agenda slightly, but uh, it, I think it's a really interesting point, and it's I don't think this is the only thing that has happened in um, a lot of stuff in Europe had a heavy vendor component as well, um, with them saying, yeah, we can provide you a complete audit trail of all the sort of trace bonds that go through or whatever. Turns out they can't. Um, you know, but if it's actually getting to the point where these kind of things are um, affecting the formation of regulation as deadline, two questions I think come up from this. Number one, what's the penalty for the vendor for saying we can do this and we can't? And this is something we've been following for months now about the question of the systemic level of importance of vendors in the market now and whether there should be some form of oversight of what they do and what they don't. Yeah. Um, secondly, which idiot the SEC is actually believing there's some form of a rule around it without actually going and checking on it first and saying, all right, give me the data then, you know? Well, that was the funny thing. So uh, Charles Bragg said, two years ago, uh, so this is a quote from him, two years ago I sat on a panel with someone from the SEC who helped craft the rule, and their interpretation at the time was that the vendors had perfect information for fixed income. Maybe not perfect, but very solid data that could easily incorporate the rules. I can tell you that in the conversation that we've had with some of the external vendors, they're not quite there. I think there's been significant progress on that, but I think that's going to be a challenge for the industry. You know, how do you build out that reporting? And right now we're looking at both internal solutions and third-party solutions. And one of the things that didn't quite make uh, the story I wrote about uh, Matthew Halper and said was, you know, when asked, uh, you know, do you have, you know, any, what would you like to see from the vendors? And he just said, when you go in and talk to the SEC, be honest with them, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that, this is why we got here. Is that you know we need you to be honest uh, with these people. So um, I, I found that to be very interesting. This is something that you've covered more closely, and I have certainly on liquidity. I mean, since you worked at risk, you worked at Wall Street Journal, stuff like that. These aren't things that I've necessarily have covered that much. Hence, why I was even in the room anyway. But mm. do you think that there's any other you know kind of takeaway that we should be that that the industry might? Uh, be looking at heading forward in 2018 as these bucketing rules will come into effect for December 1st, 2018? I, I mean, the key lesson is don't trust the guy selling you snake oil, right? Sure. But, um, yeah, other than that, it's just the same arguments every time around. There's people know it's going to come. Um, they leave it to the last minute. Then they start throwing their hands up going, why me? You know, yeah. this is, why is this happening to me now? Um, when they've known about it for a while. So, if you've got to use a blend, like these guys seem fairly pragmatic and they've just said, look, why am I going to do this in-house when a bunch yeah. of vendors can do it for me? Yeah. And then I'll just take what they can give me and I'll fill in the gaps myself. That seems to be a pragmatic approach, I think. But I thought that Brian had a funny uh, line. So he uh, he started on the investment banking side mm-hmm. uh, before going over to the buy side, the asset management side of UBS. And he was saying, like, you know, he I think he said it was about 10 times, you know, t- 10 to 1 kind of, of the budget, you know, that you get for technology, for data management, mm-hmm. stuff like that on... Uh, the investment bank as opposed to the buy side. I mean, it shrinks by like a factor of 10 on the Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. And so, but he said that's the same across the board in the industry. And that's consistent with what we've heard yeah. in the past for sure. Um, and so that's one area where, you know, these banks are now saying we're technology companies, biggest asset manager saying, you know, we're a technology company. They're saying, listen, we do not want to be a big data vendor, you know, that. Yeah. So we need some help on the big data uh, side of this, the data management side of this. So, so it's so strange because you, 
you do talk these all these different arms of banks. Like the wealth management arm has ten times less the budget than the IB side has for data. And then you get the security services side saying that they want to be data custodians and that kind of thing. It's almost well, I mean, this is obvious when he's listening, but it's like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing half yeah. the time. Like um, a couple of guys I spoke to at Cybos from Sockgen were saying like, yeah, this is our kind of role in the next ten years is not only becoming a custodian of assets but a custodian of data. Yet you talk to other people in other parts of the bank, they're like, yeah, we haven't got any data management strategy whatsoever. <laughs> We're still talking about governance, man, and that was like five yeah. years ago. So it's a, like a weird little disconnect. And I think despite the fact they've been told again and again, and if you look at BCBS 239, if you look at things like this liquidity management rule, like at the core of it, it is literally get your information in order. That's the key drive behind it, is make yeah. sure you know what's going on at all parts of your bank at all times. Um, I don't see how people can't see that overarching kind of strategy behind it and are just attacking it like a Mifid 2 compliance patch or something like that and just doing it in isolation individually. No one seems to learn yeah. each time. So, it's yeah. the same story that we've been telling them for years. Now. Years and years and years. <laughs> and like, you know, when I was at um, Risky SA, there was a panel on um, uh, how do you implement AI for enterprise-wide risk management, essentially. And... There were three guys on the stage. I knew exactly where I was going to go because I've heard them speak before. And lo and behold, within 15 minutes, they started talking about data management and data governance. And everyone in the audience kind of You've got to get your data right. You've got to get your data right. You've got to get your governance there or an operational sense on top. But you know, it's all about the data. And you can literally hear everyone in the audience just go, oh, okay, <laughs> okay well, but like, you know what? They were right. You can't do AI. You can't do blockchain. You can't do compliance with these rules. You can't do effective cross-asset trading if you don't have your data in order. Yeah. And it's just, and I could tell from the guys on stage who are just, even when they were saying it, it was like, I've said this 6,000 times at every conference over the yeah. last three years. Nobody is listening to me. Yeah, kind of the player of greatest hits right now, you know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you get kind of, you know, banks uh, for awards and stuff saying how great their data management strategy is. And then there's the same people on the panels in the uh, the next conference going, well, we're not ready. So, you know. Well, you know, there's something else that, you know, kind of consolidates some data in some mm-hmm. ways. The consolidated audit trail. The consolidated oh, nice segue. Oh, I like it. Thanks. This is good. Um, Amelia, uh, she went down to Washington, D.C. to cover the SIFMA conference down there mm-hmm. um, because people keep on putting, you know, these conferences in exotic metropolitan, you know, locations um, in October. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, a nice little, uh, beautiful, actually, October so far. It's been more like a September so far. Yeah. But... Um, down there, uh, several industry participants uh, bemoaned the fact that this implementation uh, should be um, delayed a little bit. The, the, the consolidated our trail, the cat, uh, should be delayed. So, what I guess maybe you, uh, what, you know, what's kind of the gist of it? Yeah, so this follows on from a couple of stories that I did um, over the last month or so. Uh, so Clayton's been doing the rounds in DC, um, not only at these conferences, but also Jay in front Clayton, of... Jay Clayton, SEC chairman. Yes, sorry, yeah, Jay Clayton, SEC chairman. Uh, not only... Not Clayton McGrady. Not Clayton McGrady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trade went for him. It's, uh, no. Hi, Clayton. <laughs> um, uh, no, so he's been doing conferences, but he's also been in front of uh, House and Senate committees um, in the wake of this SEC data breach they had in the ecosystem. Sure. And one of the key things that's been coming through from both sides, from senators and from uh, congressmen, is we're a bit concerned that you're collecting all of this data, um, but you're getting your ecosystem infiltrated, and people have had their social security numbers exposed and all the rest of it. How can you safeguard um, the the data that you're collecting? This vast amount of personal identifiable information for traders. Sure. And Clayton, kind of, you know, in the way that Clayton is, where it seems like he doesn't really know what he's let himself in for a lot of the time, he just kind of sits there. <laughs> 
I've had several reporters come up to me in, from various publications say he's the most frustrating man to listen to on a panel because he will start a sentence and change his mind halfway through <laughs> and then just sit there and sweat for a bit and then just change his mind for a little way through. Um, because obviously, like, I mean, it must be a massive job coming into lead agency like this, but he clearly, clearly doesn't have an idea of exactly what's going on here. Yeah. Um, with the cat when he talks about how it's uh, a tool for the industry and everything like that, and it's like, it's not a tool for the industry. It's, it was put in motion after the flash crash when you guys couldn't figure out what happened, and so everyone said, get an audit train in the place, so next time it happens, you know what happened. Um, so he said that it won't be delayed. Uh, it's probably a bit too late anyway. It's going live for self-regulatory organisations, like stock exchanges and what mm -hmm. have you, on November the 15th. Yeah. So, um, you know, the cat is out of the bag. Ta -da! Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God, I hate you. That was the, uh, that's going to be the title of my column today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then next year, uh, November 15th, all of the big... Um, Banks and financial firms have to start reporting to it as well. I mean, it just seems like a, why do, the question really is why don't you have this already? Like, if your job is servicing the markets, why don't you have a way of the technology's there? Yeah, it's been built in like a year. You know, yeah. it's fine. We can do it. Um, the thing with Clayson is saying now is that it's not we postponed, but they might look at what data they're collecting and that kind of thing, which seems to be the wrong approach. It's just collect the data, like bring it in. As long as you can read it and you can normalize it and you can structure it appropriately and that kind of thing. It's going to serve its purpose. Just make sure that your cybersecurity protections are strong around it, that you have, a, you know, a frequent, strong, and robust system to govern it. I mean, the uh, even the SEC hack attack uh, from 2016 wasn't as bad as it could have been, and I think they actually detected it fairly quickly and patched it. But um, it's taken a while for the forensics to figure out what got exposed. Yeah. So there is an element of reaction. So this is an element of. Um, senators and congressmen wanting to be seen to be tough on the SEC. Um, sure. Cat's not going to be delayed. Cat's going to go forward. Um, anybody who thinks otherwise is probably living in cloud cuckoo land. But, yeah. Whatever that is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we have all these stories up online. We will link to them as well. Um, and, yeah, so it was definitely an interesting week just based off of all these conferences that have been yeah. happening around us. And again, the three conferences I mentioned before, Asia Pacific Financial Information Conference, the Waters Technology Innovation Summit, and Waters USA. Yep. All, all coming to a theater near you in Hong Kong, London, and New York. And then nothing for an entire quarter. Oh, that's that's lovely. <laughs> Can't wait. No more conferences. Um, so, enough about fintech. Yep. Enough about risk. How about some baseball, Jim? Let's talk about some baseball. Let's baseball. talk about the uh, ignominious defeat of the New York Yankees and the Incredible rise of the Houston Astros. One of the finest baseball series uh, you'll ever see. Hopefully, the Astros. You know, this this one's shaping up to be a classic. Oh yeah, I mean that was one of the best baseball games I've ever seen. I think it was, everybody keeps know. on saying that. Yeah. If you are a fan of the Houston Astros, or I'm, I would imagine also the Dodgers, hell, the Dodgers lost. Hmm. That was not fun in any no, way, shape, imagine. or form. There was nowhere, like there was no time during that game. Like after uh, Verlander gave up uh, the two-run home run and the Dodgers are up, you know, three to one, whatever it was. You know, from there I was just like, oh god, now this bullpen. <laughs> but you know, just the back and forth of that game with five home runs and in extra innings, home runs by the Astros, ninth, tenth, and eleventh innings. Yep. Absolutely, just a. Ridiculous whipsaw of I imagine just you were sitting there just as a nervous wreck the entire time, clutching a can of beer. Well, so here, so I was at, so I go home. So we had uh, we, we hung around for the risk USA, and I got home right as the baseball game was starting. And 
So I'm watching on the couch, and then like they start losing. So I go and I put my headphones in. And I just pulled up on the app to listen to the radio feed of it. And I just walk around the neighborhood smoking a cigar, mm-hmm. and I'm just sitting outside of uh, this bar I should pull out of in Williamsburg called R Bar, and uh, or Greenpoint really there. Um, and uh, you know, so they uh, come back and they tie it up. Uh, Marvin Gonzalez, so that ties up. I'm like, I'm just staying here now. So I go inside, sit down, just watch the game in there. It's like this, these swings, you know, they go up, yes. They come back, God, no, God, why are you doing this to me? The 11th inning when they go up by two, but then also then give up a, a home run. It's like, oh, God, why? Why can't this be easy? That's great fun of mine. I mean, as a, my wife and I are both Yankees fans, and uh, she's way more militant than I am, so she was firmly saying, Dodgers, kick your asses, that kind of thing. I was more like, kind of, I want the Astros to win, actually. Um, <laughs> so it was a great little back and forth on the sofa, just watching it yeah. and sort of seeing it go. But I imagine for you, as a hardcore Astros fan, was a nail-biting experience. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's one of those things that you kind of take for granted. Like, when you had, like, the Yankees had Mariano Rivera for decades, and, you know, where you just knew, you go in ninth inning, yeah, yeah, he blew games and stuff like that. He blew World Series game 2001. Sure, it happens, but it's shocking when it happens. Kenley Jensen blowing his day was shocking when it happened. The Astros, yeah, we know that our relievers are just, we hope that they go out there and just don't shit the bed. <laughs> it's just, which happened. Well, I'm kid, you didn't piss yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's just, you know, one of these days I really want to have just one of those kind of closers you know we had Lidge we had Billy Wagner for a while um but you know just they were even all over the place but um yeah it was it was an exciting game um but now it's still play. I, you know this one I I think the Ashers are in great shape this oh, yeah. game three tonight I went away from home man you got game three at home now That's they take game three against you Darvish with uh, McCullers if McCullers curveball is working again and they take game three. I think that they're in great, great shape uh, to take this whole thing. Hell, it it, it, it might not get back to um, back to LA um, yeah. if they can take that. Because I love our chances then in game four. Um, but anything can really happen from between now and then. So, uh, but good series. But the one I think the most shocking thing in baseball this week was the sacking of Joe Girardi, Joe Girardi. man. Yeah, I mean, 10 years in the Yankees, all his achievements. And, and like the thing I don't get about this, I can understand if they had an appalling season. Um, it was supposed to be a bridge year anyway, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. And they, they got were to the, an overachieving team. Yeah, exactly. And they got to the fucking ACLS. They got to a game of... The, of winning the World Series. Of making it to yeah, the World Series. World Series um, when they weren't supposed to even come near. This, yeah. <laughs> you know, luckily they had uh, Judge and... Um, Gary Sanchez, uh, Gary Sanchez uh, yeah, Savin- you know, Carolina. who weren't supposed to be any great shakes this season, but yeah. dominated. Um, and Sabathia's had a bit of a comeback as well. But um, you know, just incredible that the guy gets out. And apparently, I was reading the New York Times article before this podcast. He cleared out his office on Wednesday, and it was Brian Cashman, the general manager, who hired him originally to replace Joe Torre ten years ago, and um, who made the decision to fire him. <laughs> Cashman, who also doesn't have a contract at the moment as well, which is going to bode well for the Yankees. Yeah. I think it's. Uh, We'll see, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple, I guess, of internal successes. Joe Espada, he's the third-base coach, um, who has quite a good rapport with the younger kind of Spanish-speaking players, but... Well, no being in New York, they want the big-name ticket, and they yeah. you know they want, like, Don Mattingly, who's already got a job, you know, they want, you know, someone like that. Well, so he's the third coach, though, isn't he, to be fired? There's, like, Red Sox coach got fired, and, uh, was it Cleveland as well? Uh, no, Cleveland's uh, still got Franco there, um, yeah. uh, 
Well, well, definitely the Red Sox, definitely Yankees, um, just because the Astros are just basically murdering off head coaches. So <laughs> David Robinson is assassinating them. Um, <laughs> it's just such a shame that like you, he knew the writing was on the wall. Um, what sucks about this though that this actually upsets me because I was a huge Girardi fan as a player, um, even back when he was with the Cubs and stuff like that. Because um, when I was growing up, I played uh, catcher in um, when I was playing baseball. And he was somebody that I just thought was great at the position defensively, he was, he was, and he was a good, solid hitter. Um, and I, so I just really liked his all-around. Just you know, he, he personified that toughness, that grittiness yeah. of a catcher. Um, he had an impossible job of replacing Joe Torre, and Joe Torre left at the right moment, right before all these aging, aging guys just were ready to start, you know, going to decline of their career. And they were locked into monstrous contracts. He managed to win a World Series with the team. They had a winning record all every single year. And he, he managed to navigate these expiring contracts, give the players dignity, you know, let them go out kind of, with the exception of A-Rod, but, you know, A-Rod was never a, a true Yankee or whatever. Stupid shit. <laughs> um, you know, he, he managed to, to do that while keeping that team in the playoff hunt year after year after yep. year in the toughest division in baseball, you know, consistently the toughest division in baseball, the AL East. And with that and, weight of expectation every year for the Yankees as well. It must be incredibly tough to manage. It's... And then not only that, you finally get <coughs> all those old salaries off the books, and now you finally get this great young core mm-hmm. of talent with other good talent in the minor leagues like the, the Yankees have a very good farm system even with the trades that they made and everything like that and now you're out and it's like you were right there I mean I, I, I feel bad for the guy yeah he's been there for 10 years so you know it's like it's not like he got a short stick or anything like that but yeah. still I, I mean it's, it, I think I thought he did a great job of managing those contracts managing those retirements keeping them competitive keep letting them have their dignity and then builds this young team into a team that was almost in the World Series, and he did nothing wrong. Um, If Gary Sanchez catches a couple balls at the plate, who the hell knows? Maybe it's the Yankees in the World Series and not, you know, the Houston Astros. It's this kind of Premier League mentality when it comes to all coaches that pisses me off about sports, like particularly professional sports like baseball and stuff, where in the Premier League you can win the title one season, and if you don't win it the next, you're out. Yeah. Like, I think Swansea fired their manager after three losses or something at the beginning of the season. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. And there's that kind of short-termism and thinking that, like, you know, because it's not all just what happens on the pitch. It's, as you say, like, managing those contracts and everything that happens outside of it that Girardi was so good at. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, he's as much of an icon, a modern-day icon, especially people like me who came into the game relatively late in life, and he's been the only Yankees manager right now. Um, yeah. Like, you know, he kind of personified that kind of Bronx style of baseball play, yeah. which is really cool. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the... <laughs> <laughs> what they're going to do next to us. I mean, granted, there's a lot of great young talent there, and you know that this should be a team that's competitive for year in and year out. But yeah. if you think it's so easy to find, you can just plug and play managers. That is just not the case in baseball. You can screw up a bullpen. You can screw up pitchers over the course of a 162 game season. The baseball manager is very much like in game. Yeah, you know, it's like there's only so much. You're like, oh, okay. Obviously, I need my reliever in now. You know, stuff like that. Um, especially in the American League, where you don't have to worry about your pitcher coming to the to the plate, but it's managing 
a, a, a pitching staff over course seasons, managing young talent and keeping them on the right mind folk, you know, well, yeah, and also making sure fall that off the rails, they but, don't run the team as well. That's yeah. the thing, like, because now judges and people like that uh, have got such high profiles in the team, and there are a couple of well publicized spats, I think, between Girardi and a couple yeah. of young ones. It just sends the wrong message that the players run the team. That's not the case. You know, the, the coach runs the team, yeah. the general manager runs the team, not the players. And um, yeah, that's just bad decision, I think. So, yeah. yeah but there we go. Who, who knows? Next year we're sitting here and they've, you know, best team in baseball. And I'm like, okay, so, good decision. There we go. <laughs> so, we're completely wrong. All right. Well, um, anything else, James? Uh, James? No, James. I think that's, that's all good. All right. Uh, we will be back next week, getting close to 100. We still don't know what we're going to do for 100, but uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for listening. Suggestions on a postcard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but thanks uh, for your time. Um, oh, God, if you haven't hung up, you probably already have hung up. But for those listening, our email addresses have changed. Oh, yes, we should mention this. And yeah. definitely next week we'll mention this. It's our first. This is true of everybody. Um, so we were bought by InfoPro Digital. Um, uh, Incisive Media was bought by InfoPro Digital or the Insights Division of yeah, Incisive so Media. Risk, Central Banking, FX, Wheat, Waters. Yeah, all so for all of us, our new email addresses are first.lastname at infopro-digital.com. Yeah. So for my name, it's now anthony.malakian at... In, oh my God, it's a thousand. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> but so make note of that. For anybody yeah. listening, we'll have to remember to tell everybody. Our old addresses will work until April, but after that, they're done. So. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Cheers, guys.